Hello, and welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris. And I'm Ari Deckard. This is our podcast where I interview Ari about his experiences with Alport syndrome and his three kidney transplants and all of his other health and medical stories. Last episode, we talked about the financial yeah. side of Ari's illness, about how he stayed insured for many years, right, and how we paid rent, bills, and everything we needed to <laughs> yeah. when you were too sick to work. This week, we're going to go back to telling your story. Right. Okay. So we're going back to the time after your third transplant, mm -hmm. after you'd graduated and gotten your master's degree. Yes. Started working. You had had your second kidney transplant, the one that was no longer working, removed after it had yeah. started to grow a tumor. Mm -hmm. It had become myxoma. Right. So we're picking up there. What was the next big medical issue you had? <laughs> yeah, this really is, in some ways, a, uh, a listing of medical events. So at this point, we're about four years post-transplant. Uh, like you said... Um, had the transplant, two years at City College, two years at Teachers College, and then that fourth year, or that fifth year, I had applied to be a teacher with the New York City Department of Education, and um, there really weren't open positions. I had had a number of interviews, but those uh, jobs went to other people. And it was it was a really tough year. A lot of my fellow grads had trouble finding jobs as well. So I was doing a little bit of subbing and some other things as I could. In about December, I got pretty sick. I caught something. And it was sort of like a stomach bug, but it lasted for a long time. Occasionally, I was a little bit nauseous, but mostly I was having um, what I usually call just GI stuff. I was having, uh, you know, some diarrhea, loose stool, uh, stomach pain, things like that. It was gross. This is so much easier to talk about than the money stuff last week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it is. Um, it, <laughs> I don't know if it was easier to actually deal with, but it's all a pain. Um, yeah, that was going on. And, you know, usually you have a stomach bug. It lasts a few days, a week, if it's me. In this case... It kind of lasted for like three weeks or a month. It was quite a while. It was like mid-January before I was really feeling better. And that wasn't fun. Um, but that timing worked out pretty well because I got hired to do a long-term subbing position at this wonderful middle school that was like 20 minutes away from where we lived. It was kind of ideal. And weirdly, it was subbing um, as an eighth grade art teacher. Visual art. Visual art. It was a place that I had done a lot of substituting earlier in the year, and so I knew the school, and they really liked me, and the art teacher was going to have a baby, and so she was going to be gone for the rest of the year, and they said, oh, we would really love to have Ari at our school, so come be here. And that was fantastic. So I started in February, mid-February sometime, and, you know, I had I felt better. I wasn't having the, the tummy stuff as much anymore, but occasionally I was. And this cycle had begun sort of unbeknownst to me, but it became pretty clear where for a few days I would have all of those symptoms again. Maybe not that bad sometimes, maybe about as bad, but I would have some fairly intense um, abdominal pain. I would be very gassy. I, uh, I would have diarrhea. And um, it was gross. One of the other symptoms, very weirdly, as, as I think you recall, was that I, I started having these burps. Oh, man. And this is an audio medium. We can't share the smell <laughs> of these burps with our audience. And this was difficult. I remember we went to a doctor visit, and I was trying to describe to your doctor, like, he's burping, but the smell is weird. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I could not describe what this smelled like to him to convey that, like, no, 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 not like, oh, he had weird food, but this is doesn't smell like any kind of food. It doesn't smell like a smell that comes from a human body. It's yeah. weird and floral yeah you, and sweet. I agree with the sweet. That was part of what was difficult is that your description of the smell was very different from either my experience or my description. Um, I still don't feel like I even have correct words for it. Just 
when I smelled it, it was so distinct. Um, and it was a lot. And that usually meant within the next hour to 24 hours, oh, here comes all the other stuff. You could burp at the other side of our apartment and I'd smell that weird, I say floral because it smelled like those sprays people have, like hmm. to deodorize their home. But if you'd had that for five years <laughs> and then you tried to use it like that something had gone bad in that aerosol can, hmm. that's the best I can do. It was just a weird, not biological smell. Yeah. I feel like we're focusing on this a lot, but partly because it was so distinctive and so strange that, you know, sometimes, you know, different people's bodies make different smells and sounds and, and things. But generally speaking, one person makes the same kinds of smells regularly. And they're a little bit different from the next person's, but they all fit in kind of a category. And this was not in that category. And it was completely different from anything that had come out of my body in the past or that you would expect to come out of another human's body. It was very, very strange. So we tried to describe it to my doctor once we were started noticing this cycle. And he was intrigued, but you know, he's a transplant nephrologist and it wasn't quite his area. So he, you know, he said, well, let's take some blood. Let's do a couple of tests. And it didn't really show anything. And as he explained, as and as I know, he kind of said, well, let me know if this gets worse or if it keeps going because we could see a specialist because, you know, transplant patients take a lot of drugs. There's always something going around and we're more sensitive to that kind of thing. So maybe you've just got whatever this is or your body's just being more sensitive in this way right now. And I was like, oh, okay, yay. This cycle continued and it gradually got worse. And I honestly don't remember, and maybe you do, how often this cycle went. I don't remember if it was like weekly or every couple of weeks. It, it, I mean, it eventually accelerated. But you at first- You were regularly spending up to half an hour in the bathroom. Well, that's true. Yeah. And several times a week. Yeah. Which is a thing that you notice when you share a, an apartment with one bathroom <laughs> with somebody. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And I guess- uh, retroactively this episode's a little gross sorry <laughs> um I, I it's doesn't really get much grosser than this but um fyi past you <laughs> um so let's see i was still teaching my subposition was going great uh but there's this special kind of thing that i think all teachers know uh, where you learn to um, hold it. <laughs> There's little jokes about teachers having kind of bladders of iron or something because you can't just go whenever you need to, like you might say in an office or other jobs. You can only leave when there's no kids in your room or if another adult can be in the room because legally you have to be in the same room as the kids for super obvious reasons. And that's fine if you're just peeing, but I was having symptoms that reminded me of what some people I know who have like irritable bowel syndrome talk about where just suddenly, oh, you've got to go now. And that's not awesome. It was really a challenge occasionally. Fortunately, my schedule was not flexible enough, but had enough like large holes in it at the right times that it was manageable for a while anyway. Uh, so I was saying, like, this cycle started to get, I guess, tighter. It was more and more frequent that I was having more abdominal pain. The abdominal pain gradually was getting more severe. I was spending more time in the bathroom more frequently. And um, I kept thinking, oh, this is going to get better. And I think I just sort of normalized it in my head because you started telling me you're in the bathroom all the time forever and I'm worried about you, will you please talk to your doctor? And I put it off for a little bit longer than I wish I had. Um, by, I want to say, two months or so. Um, and Some of that, like, I made excuses to myself about, like, it's really hard to schedule a doctor's appointment uh, around work. Um, That's true. Yeah. Taking a day off from teaching is much more challenging than... Um, other situations or just leaving early. But the other fact of the matter is it really had just kind of become normalized. And 
I was like, yeah, you know, sometimes I really have a lot of severe abdominal pain, but most of the time I'm just having diarrhea. I can live with diarrhea. Um, and that's dumb. I was so frustrated. <laughs> yeah, you really were. And, and super understandably. And it's a thing that, um, doctors have told me. I have told other people, like, do not let bad things normalize. Almost anything that's going wrong can be fixed or made better. Or it could get way worse. Well, or it could get way worse. Right. Which is why you should see a doctor. <laughs> exactly. Um, but this is a, I would say this is a real trap of chronic disease is that, as somebody who has long-term illness, you're used to stuff going wrong. You're used to stuff not being quite perfect. And I don't just mean like, because it hasn't been quite perfect for a week or a couple of months. Like my whole life, basically, I haven't been healthy. This podcast is a testament to the fact that there's always something. <laughs> I mean, those somethings have gotten far less frequent you know, we paused and we talked about other things that happened. And in the interim, two years passed. You know, right, years, right. Years passed. I mean, in, in those two years, you know, sometimes I would get a cold and be sick for three weeks or, or something like that. So anyway, I guess I, I normalized this. I started thinking, well, I can deal with diarrhea, which is seriously, people don't do that. That's stupid. And I'm here to tell you don't do that. But I did for a while. And so then I finally went in and saw my doctor again, like was able to have the appointment and go in and see. And he said, okay, yeah, that sounds really serious. And you're saying it's serious. So let's go see a specialist and let's do a lot more tests. So that meant many more uh, doctor's appointments and more time was passing and symptoms were slowly getting worse and closer together. But I saw a specialist and eventually that meant that I had a colonoscopy, um, yet another one. And those are not fun. They're not like terrible, but they're not fun. Partly because I had to have that terrible, gross drink to clean myself out again. And in this case, it made me throw up. Like I you couldn't, didn't finish it. Yeah, I couldn't handle it. And I got really worried. Like, I need to have this test. I need to have it now. My symptoms have been getting worse. And at that point, I was well aware I have delayed a little bit. And uh-oh. And I called them and I said, I can't keep it down. And they said, well, try to have one more dose. And I this was like the fourth one I had tried. And if you can't keep that down, then come in and we'll see if we can do it. Fortunately, it had done its job. It helped that I had been mostly having diarrhea for weeks. And so I, there wasn't a lot of stuff in me to get rid of. Um, so they did this colonoscopy and the end result was they said, we think that you have what's called CMV colitis. And then they started to explain. So CMV is this thing. And I was like, oh no, I know what CMV is. CMV is a cytomegalovirus. And they looked at me like, who are you? Which, you know, I'll admit is kind of what I was hoping for because it's fun to know things that doctors maybe don't expect you to know, or at least for me it is. But CMV is a specific thing that transplant patients often know about. And can you just say it slow again for people? <laughs> sure. Cytomegalovirus. Great. I hope I actually pronounced that right. CMV is one of those things that is a virus that acts like a lot of viruses we get. And you have the flu for a few days, and it might be a little bit more severe than another flu, or it might not. Lots of people have had it. Lots of people haven't. And for the average person who's not immunosuppressed, it's one of those things that you just encounter, and it's like one of those times you got the flu. But for transplant patients, it's especially notable because it's actually more dangerous. One of the reasons is it can actually just hang out in your body. And it's a marker that they keep track of when you're preparing for transplant. They want to know if you're CMV negative or CMV positive. If you're CMV negative and you get an organ from somebody who's CMV positive, the CMV could activate and give you CMV, a really severe flu right at the moment when you're getting your immune system suppressed. And so it would become very, very serious and it could actually be life threatening. And then, of course, you would also have it in your body for the rest of your life where it could be activated fairly easily because you're on immunosuppressive um, medication. So I, at some point, 
had gone from being CMV negative to CMV positive because I got it the regular way that everybody gets it, not through transplant. And I knew that. And I explained that to them and they went, oh, okay, well, CMV can lodge in all kinds of parts of the body. And in your case, it seems to be in this spot in your colon and it's really, really irritating your colon. It's become activated and that's causing your gastrointestinal system to really freak out. And they said, so we're going to try some antibiotics and that's what we need to do. That's what you do. And I went, okay. This colonoscopy, is this the one later would come back to haunt us? I know that we talked about finances last week, but one of the elements we didn't talk about is that your main doctor's office doesn't do this, but a lot of specialists will bill the wrong insurance. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm just, Columbia Presbyterian is great, but I, I don't have a problem saying that this is a serious issue where they bill the wrong insurance don't tell you they've done this. And then months later, you get a sternly worded letter from a collections agency telling you you need to pay for this procedure. Right. Um, Yes, that is exactly who it was. And it, it was one of those things that stuck around because somehow in the system, they had an old insurance listed for me. And that insurance company was like, never heard of this dude. Nice try. And I believe that what they should have done is then contacted me to say, what's your actual insurance? Or build my secondary insurance, or what they thought was my secondary insurance, but was actually my primary. But they did not. This is mostly just individual departments seem to have this problem sometimes. We've gone in and said, please bring (laughs) up the computer. If you have this wrong insurance, delete it right now and put the right one in. We've sat there and done it, and then still... Months later, it's the same. I even know the collections agency letterhead that they send mm-hmm. these letters on. And it's really stressful to get a letter from a collections agency. It it's is. It's scary. And then you have this big thing you've got to work out. Yeah. Uh, I, I will say, though, that, that the people at that collections agency are really nice. I call them up and I say, hey, uh, I think there was this problem because they billed the wrong insurance. And they say, okay, what's the file number? What's the actual insurance? All right, we'll call them and make sure they bill the right people. And Usually, nine times out of ten, and it might be that it's happened nine times, that has been the end of it. A couple of times, it required somebody actually calling and saying, no, seriously, this insurance does not exist for me. Call this one, or me calling the insurance company. But uh, mostly, it's just a, a, a headache, a big spike in the blood pressure for a couple of days, and then it gets worked out. But yeah, this was one of those definite times where it just, it hung around and then we thought it was resolved and then it came back a year later. (laughs) That same darn colonoscopy. (laughs) But that told us that I had CMV colitis and they started giving me medication. And I just realized that I said it's a virus and they're giving me antibiotics and those two things don't actually go together. So I'm probably using the wrong terms, but they were giving me medication that should have taken care of the CMV. And it didn't. It maybe made things a little better for a little while. And so then I said, it's not really getting better. And so then we tried some other stuff and it still wasn't getting better. Um, And all the while, you know, time was passing. We were moving into like May, you know, the colonoscopy was in April, maybe. So we're moving into May, we're moving into June. The New York City Department of Ed has school go till the very end of June. I was teaching eighth grade and in New York City, There's a lot of school choice and mobility, and so students had applied to a lot of um, high schools and had gotten into different ones. A lot of our kids had gotten into some very um, high-end, exciting high schools and were really excited about it, and we were excited about that for them. So we had been planning all of these um, commencement ceremonies for eighth grade to say, hey, have fun going off around the city to all five boroughs. All five? Okay, I don't think who, anyone who went was to, going to Staten Island. I don't think anyone was going to Staten Island. Maybe. I don't remember. I didn't keep track of every place that everybody went. But they were truly, they were going to places like Stuyvesant and Bronx Science and LaGuardia, which is the fame high school, like the big famous high schools in New York. Lots of our kids were going to those places. But I was getting worse and worse. And it was getting actually hard to get through the day because I was having so much stomach pain and, um, so much diarrhea, just at all of a sudden, like, oh my goodness, I have to go. And that's that's really difficult. 
obviously, if you're there with kids trying to teach or just look at people's work and give them comments. At this point, also, because I was having so much pain and it wasn't like I was having trouble keeping food down exactly, but I kind of wasn't hungry. I was not eating a lot because I was losing a lot of fluid through diarrhea. One of my doctors said, you know, drink Gatorade so that you're staying hydrated. And a lot of the food that I could eat was mainly like crackers. And I was sort of subsisting on like Gatorade and pita chips uh, for a while. You, over these months, lost so much weight. I really did. And it's not like I have a lot of weight to lose. No, you're a skinny dude, but your regular clothes, you looked like you were a little kid wearing your daddy's pants <laughs> when you put on your jeans. Yeah. You know, you like, you could buckle your belt to the last hole and you still would have a little bit of trouble. Like, you you were small. Yeah. Yeah, I was. Um, <laughs> so... It wasn't great. It really wasn't. Um, by the end of the year, by the end of June, it, it finally got so bad that about, I want to say a week and a half before the very end of school, I finally had to call out and say, I can't come in today. I'm, I'm too sick. And then the next day, and I thought, oh, I'll be better just from one day, which often is true, but it wasn't here. I also had to call out. And then, it, in fact, had gotten worse, and so we called, I think, my nurse on call or my doctor and described what was going on, and they said, you know, that sounds really bad because I was having so much stomach pain. It was just really, 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 really uncomfortable, and they said, you should go to the ER. So we kind of grabbed our stuff, and we went up to the ER, um, and that was a pretty scary moment. Yeah, I think we were both pretty terrified the way that you had lost your second transplant yeah. was because of gastrointestinal problems. You were yeah. taken to the ER and hospitalized because you'd been throwing up, because you were having abdominal pain. And then as a result of all the side effects of that, that's how you lost your kidney. Yeah. And we were both really aware of that. And I think I think we both knew that we were aware of that, but we didn't want to talk about it. Well, yeah. And at that point, You'd had your kidney about as long as mm -hmm. the other ones. It was starting to feel like, okay, here's the bad luck again. Right, right. Maybe my timer is two and a half to three years, and here it is, and that's happened. You know, same thing, same pattern. And so, you know, we went to the ER kind of in that state, and I want to say it was like a Friday night. It was one of our worst ER wait time. It was just... Oh, yeah. And this is not a slam on the people running the ER. It was no. just one of those nights where it was packed. They were slammed and, you know, there are people who need immediate life-saving care and you've got to wait. Yeah. And they had no beds. I remember they finally got you kind of on a stretcher bed, but not in a nook anywhere in the mm -hmm. ER. You were kind of just hanging out with a bunch of other people in a hallway. Yeah. It took a long time to get a nurse. Yeah, it really did. And again, like, I think we both want to be clear, this wasn't a problem with the ER staff at all. They were efficient, professional, caring, like really on it, surprisingly on it, given what an incredible madhouse that ER was that night. You know, I've been in a lot of ERs, uh, <laughs> not super often, but, you know, I have and in different places in different parts of the country. And there are often there's somebody screaming because they're in pain. But this was like, here's somebody screaming because they haven't taken their mood regulators for three months. Here's another person screaming for a similar reason, but they're different meds. You know, I think three or four times before I was finally sort of checked in and kind of settled and you were able to leave and get some sleep at home. Right, because they checked you in at about 4 a.m. or yeah. something. <laughs> we got there at 8 p.m. Uh, there were people rushed in on a, a stretcher coming from an ambulance with people working on them as they ran down the hall. It was a crazy night. Uh, in addition, uh, I, as I recall, there was also this whole weird thing where an, a slightly older couple than we were um, was very insistent that they needed to be helped right now with their issue. They had been waiting for two hours. Right. And then they tried to poach your nurse when she came to help you. And I, uh, I was ready to throw down. I pulled, I pulled the the curtain thing to block them. Yeah, it was one of many times where you know it's nice to have any partner when you're going through things like this. But um, I, I 
personally am really glad that I have you as a partner because um, I'm very conflict avoidant in a lot of situations. And you are too. You're not a go-make-trouble person except where you think maybe trouble needs to be made politically, I think. But you're also, you have a full palette of options, I think, available to you more than most people. And you said, no, this is a time when, no, this is not acceptable. This is my husband's nurse. Right, because she'd come to try to put an IV in your arm and they were trying to pull her away from you to talk about whatever this gentleman's right, problem his was. headache or something, yeah. And I, I don't mean to say that he didn't have a serious problem. He was in the ER. Two hours is too long to wait. That's all true, but you could look around and see why, you know? <laughs> um, anyway, it, it was, we were in this place where we were feeling like, oh my goodness, it's been a little bit over two years. Actually, no, I mean, it'd been longer than two years, but maybe this is the timer time. I'm having gastrointestinal stuff. This is what caused the failure of my last transplant. Here I am again. Oh no, oh no, oh no. Try to keep calm, try to do that. And then we're in this incredibly stressful, chaotic environment and somebody's trying to take my nurse while she's trying to finally take care of me. Um, it was not a good place. They did finally get me uh, checked in. And like I said, it, it was not their fault <laughs> at all. It was just crazy night at the hospital. And so I, I ended up spending, what was it, about a week in the hospital again? A week or two, yeah. I mean, it wasn't too long. It was one of my mediumer stays in the hospital. And during that time, it was a lot of pain management, uh, really. And um, they fed me through a tube for several days just to take all the stress off my everything inside. And hit me really hard with, and again, I'm going to say antibiotics, but with antivirals and things that were the right things to do um, to not kill the CMV, because to my knowledge, it's not killable, but to beat it into submission so it backed the hell off and kind of went back into as dormant a state as it ever does. And they were able to do that. Unfortunately, I had to miss all my kids' graduation, all the graduation events, everything I'd been helping plan at least a little bit for several months. Uh, I was pretty sad about that. Yeah, that, that feels bad. Yeah, it does. I, I felt like I let them down. They were pretty cool about it because um, I had set up a teaching Instagram account. And so a bunch of kids said like, oh, thank you. It was really fun having you as an art teacher. And, you know, that's nice. But it's not how you want to end a year. No, it really isn't. You want to be able to see their parents one last time and say, hey, your kid is going to do great things, and they've been a really pleasant student to teach. Or even if they haven't, they're going to go <laughs> do great things. And just, you know, you want to end that more conclusively and more fully. And I also, like, I didn't get to say thank you to my professional colleagues, really, except basically in an email because summer started and everybody leaves. So it, that was... That was sad. It was just sort of like my year ended in a whimper professionally. But health-wise, we took that week or so, and it really kind of reset my body and made me a lot more stable. Um, it wasn't perfect. I still had to kind of work back up to being better, but I did. Over the course of that summer, I did. And then at the end of that summer, I got hired for my current job, which was great. Uh, but for, I don't know, what, a month or so after I got out of the hospital, I could still walk straight out of my pants. Well, yeah, we went to a follow-up appointment with your doctor, mm -hmm. and I remember him saying, yeah, over the course of this summer, you know, the next several months, I'd like it if you could try to gain 30 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> and that number was shocking because I hadn't really been weighing myself that often, but I had lost, I don't know, 20 pounds. Um, no, you'd lost more than 30. He was trying to get you back up to your regular weight. Oh, okay. Well, I remember thinking, if I lived with you, how are you going to gain 30 pounds and I'm not? <laughs> yeah. uh, we, we managed to do it, I think. <laughs> I think I got to be very free with whatever I, uh, what I did. I remember a lot of cookies. That was a good time. Yeah. I feel like, you know, a lot of people talk about weight fluctuations and it's a thing that many, many people that I know struggle with in different ways. And it's not something I've ever struggled with, except that I've had super weird weight fluctuations in my life. And I can't ever recommend like, hey, yeah, I lost 20 pounds in two months. 
because I couldn't eat anything because I was deathly ill. You know, like it, <laughs> and I feel sort of guilty saying that, that, oh, that's not great. So I did, I gained the weight back, um, and a little bit more even. And, um, eventually then I was sort of cured. I would say like, I am better, but because of the beating that my GI tract took through the CMV colitis and also the previous things that had happened, I now have a fairly sensitive system in that way. Every once in a while, there's things that I eat and it's just like, oh, wow, I should not have had that. I really like beans, but I kind of shouldn't have them because they just do bad things to me now. Um, and there's little things like that. Uh, caffeine's a little harder on me sometimes. And basically, any time I get actual sick, not like sniffly cold sick, I have a little bit of a GI thing, which is, you know, annoying. It's like I would, if just being stuffed up is enough. Thank you. I would like to just have that. I just have my cough. Oh, no. Also, here's this too. And I still take uh, medication for that as well. And that's the last time you were hospitalized. It is. Yay. I think at this point, I want to make sure we have time. So I'm going to move on to the listener mail okay. segment. And this is a little bit different because it's not email. All right. We got contacted on Twitter via our Twitter account mm -hmm. by a pediatric nephrologist. I'm worried I'm going to mispronounce her name, but it's Michelle Rahalt. Okay. And maybe she can send us a tweet and actually clarify <laughs> the pronunciation. She invited us to participate in a Twitter discussion, yeah. the hashtag NephJC, and they were discussing, it was kind of like a nephrologist book club. Yeah, it was neat. We were invited to give your patient perspective on this study that they were talking about, this article they were reading. And to quickly summarize the okay. study, they were looking at non-adherence uh, mm -hmm. to medication schedules for kidney transplant patients. Yes. So people with a transplant who don't take their meds. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a very big problem between people between 18 and 21 years old. Yes. And, you know, they don't take their meds. They might lose the transplant. This is, what, this is the most dangerous time. Right. So this was an experiment that was done where they had a smart pill bottle, right? basically. And so they, they divided the participants in the study into three groups. There were people who just had the smart pill bottle and it didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. They could open it up or not whenever. Then they had the second group where their pill bottle, when it was time to take their medication, would light up and make a noise to remind them, hey, take your medication. Right. And then a third group... Where in addition to the lights and noises, the pill bottle also would call their transplant nurse mm -hmm. if they didn't take the medication. If they didn't open the bottle. Right, if they didn't open the bottle. So yes. the nurse would know they weren't taking their meds and yeah. could call them and follow up. Right. And what they found was in the control group, where the bottle didn't do anything, medication adherence was 55%. Yeah. Um, if the pill bottle lit up and reminded people, 78%. And in the pill bottles where they lit up and called the nurse, mm. it was 88% medication adherence. Right. And so they were discussing the study and how it was performed, but also just getting perspectives mm -hmm. on this. And so broadly, what's your perspective on this issue and on this particular experiment? I, I thought it was fascinating and there was so many things that were interesting about it and cool and also depressing. Uh, so I'll start with sort of the depressing bit first, because as we've discussed, I have some kind of insight and perspective on this. Certainly, I had a transplant at that age, and I had trouble taking my meds, although for a different reason. And I was really, really dismayed and uh, quite honestly shocked that the adherence level in basically with traditional tracking, because I believe that with all of these, they did the same things that their center did. So there was still like some phone calls from the nurse and maybe text message reminders or something. Yeah, they did the regular thing plus whatever was happening with the pill bottle. Right, which is more than I had when I had my transplant then or really any time since. I, nobody calls me or texts me to be like, it's nine o'clock. Are you taking your pills? That 55% was adherence. That's crazy. That's like, I mean, I take pills now twice a day, which is actually not very often as a transplant patient. When I was directly post-transplant, and especially on my earlier transplants, I took meds 
four times a day, sometimes at a minimum. So even still, that meant I was missing two out of four, basically half the doses if I was at 55% adherence. I never was. That would be ridiculously low for me. And you lost your transplant. Right. I mean, I think probably towards the very end when I was very, very sick and my brain was telling me, it's fine, whatever you do, um, I was probably at 55 or maybe even less. I don't, I have no idea. But 55% adherence on average for this age group is terrifying and awful and um, not good enough to keep the, the transplant, I think. And um, I would say that lots of the nephrologists that we saw in this chat expressed the same thing, that it was really, really frustrating that they're doing all this stuff and it's important and patient education has happened and continues to happen and still that's not enough. Well, and a lot of these people were doctors and they were talking about this means that they don't know what their patients are doing. Right. That they, they all thought their patients were much more adherent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, if I'd had to guess, and I would have been like, well, this is terrible, but it's probably about 75%. And that, no, it's not. It's way lower than that. So that's the really dismaying thing. I think, relatedly, the dismaying thing is then, even with a pill bottle that lights up and tells on you, so that you get a call from your nurse saying, you didn't take your meds, take them right now while we're on the phone, it's still 88%. I mean, 88 is pretty good. It's a B plus. And this is your life. <laughs> it's not like getting a B plus in math. Still going to graduate, probably on the honor roll with that. But no, no, no. Like 88% to save and keep the organ that keeps you living going. So that's that's sort of the depressing part. You know, and as I say, I say this as somebody, like I said, who was a teenage transplant recipient who works with teenagers. I get that about kids. I do. Um, but still, it's really, it's really dismaying. It's really frustrating and, and sad. Uh, I think the cool thing for me were, there was mainly two things. One was that it's nice to know that they're trying stuff. I know that seems a little, I don't know, wishy-washy, but it's really cool that this is something that professionals think about every day. It's not like, well, listen, we made them take a class and we really emphasized it and we sat them down with their parents or whoever and we said, no, really, this is important. And we meet with them and we talk to them and we make good relationships with them and we do everything we can with our patients to do that. But they're thinking about it. They're leveraging modern technology. They're texting regularly. They might even just have automatic text set up. They're calling maybe daily or weekly to say, hey, remember, taking your meds is important. How, how often did you take your meds this week? Stuff that never used to happen. That's amazing. That's saying the world is different now. We have cell phones. We can do that. Everybody is reachable all the time. So we're going to reach you to help you remember to do this thing that's so important. And related to that, all of the doctors who were talking about this, they were talking about statistics. They were talking about the science. They were talking about testing levels of drugs in blood and how accurate those can be. But they were also saying, like, I really want this to be better. I want my younger patients and my older patients to adhere better, to be more compliant, to do what they need to do for their kidney. So what's the solution? Like that was the question over and over. People were suggesting things and people were asking it. What's the solution? If this is the numbers that we're seeing, then we need to do better. What can we do? There was no throwing up of hands in the air. You know, there was no like, listen, we've done what we can do. They're going to do it or not. And it wasn't because, oh, this is an expensive procedure. It was because these are our patients. They are important. <laughs> and that's just really heartening. Um, and the second thing is that then on top of it, or again, related to that, but on top of that, then they said, all right, what if we made a freaking pill bottle that calls somebody? We're going to put the internet in a cap on a bottle. Well, that was the thing I wanted to ask you about is, what do you think of this as a solution? Um, the article that, that Michelle wrote she titled it, Even Your Pill Bottle Spies on You. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that it's a violation of privacy? Would you would you dislike that? Or do you think that in some cases this is a good idea? You know, that's really hard for me to say. I'm trying to take myself out of 39-year-old Ari and put myself back into 19-year-old Ari. 
19-year-old Ari, I think, would feel a little condescended to. Like, I'm a smart person. You told me. I know it's important. Duh, I'm doing it a little bit. And that's, that is true of many people that age that I have known. I can see that. I think, I think that I was sometimes annoyed when one of my nurses called to check in on me, which was their job, and they were very nice about it. Um, and I liked them, but I was like, come on, I'm like 19, I'm 20, I've got it, you know, I'm a grown-up, please. And I can see that that would be frustrating to have, like, then your pill bottle triggers that. And I could see that it would be like, well, the smoke detector is beeping, what if I just take the battery out? You know, and I, I don't, I'm not saying take the battery out, but like if my pill bottle is flashing and beeping, I might just be like, well, I'll take the cap off so it stops and I can finish my video game and then I'll remember to take the pill later. And maybe I will and maybe I won't, but I have turned off the reminder. Um, and I don't fully know about the tech. Maybe it would keep flashing. You know, maybe it would do it again in five minutes. I don't know. But, you know, that's also an imperfect thing. There is no way to make sure that once the cap has been turned or the the thing has been activated that the pill is then removed from the bottle and ingested well can i just ask you this explicitly if you at age 19 at lawrence had had a pill bottle that flashed and lit up to remind you and that called your nurse when you didn't open that bottle would you have taken your meds more regularly um once I was deep into uremia? Right, with all the stuff that was going on and affecting your mind and judgment. Do you think this would have helped you? You know, that's really hard for me to answer. Um, I, I have no idea. I can speculate in both directions. I can say maybe getting those phone calls from my nurse would have kicked, started something in my brain and said, like, no, 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 no. I have gone down this path where I think it's okay to not do the right thing because chemicals are going wrong in my brain and it would have like snapped me back. I can see that that could be the case, but I can also see knowing how convinced I was in that headspace that I would just be like, she doesn't know. Um, really hard to say. I can also totally see, like, if it didn't call the nurse, it would just lit up. I could totally have seen myself being like, yeah, I'll take it next time. Or, listen, it's really loud right now. I'm in the middle of practicing, or I'm deep in my paper writing, or I'm playing a game, or I just don't want to be bothered right now. Click, click, done. I'll take it in a minute. I can totally see myself doing it. That's why I raised that a little bit ago. Um, it's really tough to say. I can, I, like, I can see it completely either way. I like to think that it would have worked better, um, that it would have snapped me back. Um, the problem, though, I will say in my particular case is I was uremic because my kidney was having problems regardless of the fact that I was taking my meds or not. Right. That's why I didn't ask yeah. Would it have saved the kidney? Because there's no way to know. Right. I just asked, would it have kept you taking your medications more regularly? Yeah. Um, and I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. You know, <laughs> if I could go back in time and try, I probably would. I thought it was really awesome that they invited us to participate in this uh, conversation. Agreed. And they were really supportive of your perspective. If anybody wants to read that conversation on Twitter, it's hashtag NEPHJC, so N-E-P-H-J-C. Yes. I hung out on that hashtag a little while after, a few days after the conversation ended. Okay. And one of the patient advocates who'd posted in the discussion also used the hashtag to post about um, the National Kidney Foundation. Oh, cool. Is um, launching a new initiative in 2017 that I also wanted to talk about and get your opinion on. Okay. I have not heard about this at all. I know. <laughs> it's called The Big Ask, The Big Give, a free educational campaign that teaches kidney patients in need of a transplant how to ask their friends and loved ones to consider living organ donation. Wow. Um, I'm reading from their press statement. 
if you have kidney disease and need a transplant, you may not know how to ask someone to consider donating a kidney to you. No. Asking can feel as hard as giving, and we find that many people won't get a transplant simply because they don't know how to ask. Mm -hmm. That's why we've launched the campaign. Yeah. So I wanted to get your take on that a little bit because you've talked on this podcast and outside of it yeah. a lot about how you never asked people to donate an organ and how you feel like it's too big a thing to ask for. Mm -hmm. So what's your reaction to this idea? Um, my mind's spinning a little bit, honestly, because I have talked about that uh, at length for years that it's, it's tough. And I, I feel like I've at least philosophically kind of felt or at least told myself that philosophically that's too big a thing to ask for. Um, so you think it would be wrong to ask? Well, I don't know. This is why I'm saying my mind is spinning because I kind of trust and respect the NKF. And if they have decided that asking is okay, then I kind of, I don't know. Maybe I'm just making the logical fallacy of appealing to authority, but maybe maybe i'm the one that's out in left field there i i don't know um i don't know that i would have said it's wrong but i would say like it's always felt <laughs> it's always felt gauche to me like no you don't do that like you don't go to your friend and say listen i know this is crazy but can you give me 10 grand like and this seems more serious than that because it's a body part. It's a body part. Yes. <laughs> it's a body part. And there's health risks and concerns for someone, even if you had three. Um, it's, it's, it's big. And so I, I've always felt like that and felt really weird about it. Um, that like if it's something that is given freely, that is different. Freely, that is to say, without anybody ever saying, hey, please. And I assume that this brochure has great ways or this program has actually great ways to ask about it that probably would not make me feel as uncomfortable as I'm imagining asking somebody right now makes me feel uncomfortable. Well, the point they're making is that there are people in a potential recipient's life that would give the kidney, but if you don't ask, they don't know they could or they don't know they it might be appropriate, or they may not know that it's actually pretty easy. Yeah. And so it's meant to educate people who need an organ and potential donors, here's what's actually going on, here's how this person needs you. Yeah. Because you might think it has to be free and I don't want to ask, but it might be, it never occurred to that person that they might be the one. Right. So the program has several free resources, including a website featuring videos from kidney donors and transplant recipients who share their experiences with asking for or giving someone a kidney. Um, it also offers a confidential free hotline with trained professionals and a peer mentoring program. Um, the hotline is 844-224-4275, and it connects people affected by the kidney disease with um, informed and supportive people who've been through it. And yeah, they also have brochures, but it's it's bigger <laughs> right. than that. And I'm, I'm going to link to this press release Fantastic. in our show notes. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Yeah, and I totally get where they're coming from when they say, like, people might be interested, but they need to be asked or told that it's okay, sort of. Um, I really do get that, and I, I want to be clear that my reaction is just sort of me trying to say again, well, this is where I have been coming from for so many years, and hearing this makes me go, well, on the other hand, just doing this podcast, I've heard from a lot of people not necessarily saying, I would have given you a kidney, but saying, I wanted to help, but I didn't know how. Um, or I wanted to help more. And <laughs> uh, I think that's it's kind of cool. That's neat. We do need more people to donate. While we remain in a opt-in system, we need more ways to ask people to opt in and to make it easy for people to opt in. The statistics they offer are that there are 100,000 Americans waiting for a kidney transplant. Wow. Uh, this year, only 18,000 people will receive a kidney, mm -hmm. and one-third of those 18,000 will be from living donors. Wow. Yeah, that's a very small number. That means 6,000 compared to 100,000. And there's, you know, there's way more than 100,000 people 
in the U.S. and way more than 100,000 people who could pretty easily give a kidney. Yeah, I was I was excited to get your, your read on that. and Yeah, that's really, really interesting. I'm going to check out those resources. <laughs> and I think I'm just going to ask you our traditional last question. Okay. You ready? I am. Okay. How are you feeling this week? <laughs> well, um, you know, I, I don't know that we've talked a lot about it, but on the podcast, but I think this is actually our next to last episode, uh, regular episode anyway. And um, so I'm feeling about the same as I was last week, although somewhat coincidentally, as we rush to the end of the semester, lots of people are getting sick, which means I have gotten a little bit more sick, which means in addition to being stuffed up, having a cough, I also am having some GI symptoms because of the stuff we talked about earlier. But yeah, you know, I it's towards the end of the semester. Everything's going crazy. I'm extremely busy. Kids and teachers are dropping like flies, <laughs> and we're all trying to get as many things done for each other, for the kids, for ourselves, as we possibly can before we start a new semester and do it all over again. And um, that's stressful, so it's easier to get sick, and there's, you know, sickness going around, so it's easier to get sick. So I'm a little bit worse than average, but as usual, nothing big. That's what I like to hear. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to tweet at us, like these very friendly nephrologists did, mm -hmm. we're on Twitter at KidneyCast. Yeah. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash KidneyCast. If you want to drop us a line via email, KidneyCast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Which reminds me, we also got an email as I do the closing credits. Okay. And I, I told myself I had to because it's from our KidneyCast official fact checker, your mother. Oh, yes. Who offered a small correction. She said, in Oregon <laughs> at least, if you are 18 or older and a registered organ and tissue donor, your family cannot override your wishes. Oh, that's right. Parents that's can right. only do that for a child who is under 18 because people can register at the age of 13. So... Thank you, Martha, and thank you for emailing us again. Mm -hmm. And Kitty thank you, Oregon. <laughs> KiddieCast at gmail.com. All of our episodes are available on iTunes and Stitcher, and my website, laramorris.com, L-A-R-R-A-M-O-R-R-I-S.com. Thank you so much for talking to me this week, Ari. Yeah, absolutely. And a huge thank you to everybody for listening. Yes, thank you. <laughs>